I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. forensics and crime scene investigators with subject matter experts. We have a unique show today. I met Dr. Jane Canty at the International Association for Identification in Reno, Nevada. And what was unique about our meeting is that Dr. Canty is not a forensic specialist. She's not uh, in crime scene or dealing with law enforcement in any way. She actually is a homicide survivor. Her husband was killed in a murder. So, uh, so Jan, when uh, I met you at the II conference, and I appreciate you allowing us to um, to share uh, your speech that you gave there, just your experience that you gave there, and in talking with you a little bit uh, while you were there, and since then, uh, you had made the comment that this was the first time that uh, you had shared your experience, and your experience is that your husband was killed in a violent murder, and for you to come forward into the impact this had on you and uh, people surrounding you, and and since then, people that you've met that have experienced the same thing, uh, but... Oh. And you talked about uh, being encouraged by a detective to come there. So what made you decide? What made you finally uh, come to a conference to speak to other investigators, crime scene, forensic disciplinarians about this? I received an unexpected phone call from a detective that I knew from the uh, crime itself back in Detroit. I don't know him well. His first name is Gregory. He was a ballistics expert. And he knew of a book that I'm trying to get published. And he had recently written a book about ballistics and knows the uphill battle of getting traditional publishing. So he wanted to help me in some way. And he recommended I come to IAI and speak at the Reno conference. I was a little bit unsure at the beginning because I wasn't sure what I had to offer. And I think it was kind of mutual when I approached him. They're like, well, you're not a detective. What would you have to offer us? But I landed on the topic that I think hit a nerve, judging by the response I have received. And so in the end, I was very glad I did it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something as investigators, and we do, we come to the IEI conference with the idea of learning uh, new techniques, new technology, and things that are happening in the courtroom. Uh, but I think it was uh, very impactful as you being there and also a very uh, realistic uh, visual uh, for lack of better terms, that, you know, one of the things that as investigators we uh, don't always put in the forefront are the family members that are left behind. I will tell you, in, in working homicide for so many years, the investigating the crime, uh, learning uh, how to use our training and, and those things, that's, uh, that part is easy. That part of our job, uh, most homicide investigators will tell you, is the challenging part that we enjoy. I can also say, in speaking to so many homicide investigators, that the one thing we don't enjoy um, and the hardest part of the job is dealing with the family. And the reason why is because it, at that point, it creates that connection, right? At this point, we're dealing with human emotions and we see the impact uh, that this has made. And that's that's usually the hardest part of working that. And you brought up some great points uh, that we just don't think about in uh, what a victim goes through that we take for granted every day that we see. Oh. And, you know, I, I know that uh, you uh, spoke and, and we're going to play that uh, speech that you gave on the many aspects, the, the media, the testimony, the courtroom, the dealing with investigations, just the notification, all the different things uh, that you learned along the way, uh, not voluntarily. <laughs> and, uh, so the big question that I sort of have for you is, as investigators, what can we do? What uh, is helpful, I guess, for our families of the victims uh, through the process? Well, first of all, I think it is difficult for you in your role because you're trying to do a scientific inquiry. And I can understand that the family is very emotional and it can distract from your main tasks. Uh Nonetheless, I, I will say, just speaking from my own experience, I know this is not shared universally, but from my experience, 
I could not find any fault with the Detroit Homicide Division at all in terms of how they approached me and helped me through this. I think that some of the things they did right is that they didn't mince words. I'm not saying they were cruel, but they they got to the point when they had the talk with me. They were right. direct. And I, they spoke about it. In my state of mind, I needed somebody to be real plain, real simple, because I was so exhausted and not myself and many, I hadn't been eating and it was so much to comprehend. And they seemed to understand that because what they did tell me, they said it in very simple terms and they repeated themselves to me, which I think was helpful. Um, the other thing that they did, I had a, the good fortune of being assigned to Detective Landeros. And she, I don't think this is universal. I don't know. This is the only situation I've ever been involved with. It's like this. But she actually accompanied me to the morgue when I had to identify my husband. And that was extremely helpful. I, I don't know how common that is, but I don't know that I could have done it without her. Uh, she was, again, very simple in her explanation of what was going to happen, what I was going to see, what they wanted from me. And, and I, I literally had her put her arm under mine and get me into the room. I don't know that I, I, I just couldn't get my feet going when it came to that moment. And she was extremely mindful of when we were exiting the building to get me away from the reporters. So I, I think one of the things that she was able to do is she had like one foot in the professional world of investigating and yet another in supporting me, not in a therapist kind of way or with a lot of words even, but just her calm demeanor, her presence, her forthrightness was extremely helpful. I think nowadays the other two things I would strongly recommend is that one, that homicide detectives link the people up with a, a court advocate, a victim advocate. There wasn't those in my day, but there are now. I don't know how that process works, but I think that's a missing link that now we have, and I think it should be utilized because they're like a guide to an unknown area. I mean, that's a whole nother thing is the court process. The other thing that they could do even earlier on is to tell the family that they really, that you recommend that they get a family spokesperson because you're in such a fragile state. You don't know your rights. You don't know what you should be speaking to. You don't have your wits about you. And as I explained in the conference, when you're in shock, the speech centers to your brain are, the, the oxygen is slowed down because the blood supply is slowed down. So you come out inarticulate and babbling and all over the place. And I know that in some markets, that's what the media wants to capture, but that's not something a victim or a victim's family needs is to be captured on tape at that time. So a family spokesperson, given all the information that they can in a free hand to answer questions is another recommendation I would strongly urge and something in retrospect I wish I'd had. Uh, luckily with, uh, with technology, I don't know uh, in my many years in doing it, uh, I have yet to ever have to have a family member go oh. to the morgue anymore uh, with the, uh, you know, with the advances in, in DNA and different things of this nature. You know, we can have uh, presumptive type of test uh, that, you know, we believe this is the person that we can confirm it with DNA and, and those type of things. So luckily uh, it is not as uh, readily available. I mean, there's still times that uh, uh, we sometimes will have to use uh, a photograph for someone that may not be, uh, you know, in the system. We don't have their It's sort of a last resort to mm -hmm. even show a photograph. Uh, but luckily, uh, it's it's not common practice for us to ever uh, bring the family member in to see their loved one in that state or otherwise. And and even when we've shown them a photograph, it's been something that uh, uh, we've tried to clean up to a point, um, you know, uh, removing to use Photoshop or something to, uh, remove things where basically you can tell right. us, is this the person or not? Right. It's, you know, uh, we're not, uh, uh, there to show you the brutality. We just need to know, can you confirm this? And so luckily that, that part's that part advanced, of, you know, the, I the think other that part, part of the reason yeah. detective Landeros had me come to the morgue 
was for court purposes because they knew it was him. They had fingerprints from previous arrests. But what she told me as we were going into the morgue was that, one, she wanted me to understand he was never coming home. And secondly, she wanted me later to testify in court as to his identity. So I think it was for the impact for the prosecution that they wanted to put me on the stand. They had to find a reason, I think, to put me on the stand because I wasn't a witness. I wasn't injured in the attack. I didn't know the people involved. So I had little to say about the case itself. But thinking back, I I really think that it was to make an impact for the jury. And you you talked about that as far as uh, in your speech, as far as things that are allowed to come into the court, as much as you'd like other things to come into the court. Uh, I know you spoke about that. And the one thing that really stuck with me um, in you uh, talking about navigating the criminal justice system, like I said before, that, you know, uh, cops do this every day and we get complacent with what we believe the public knows um, you know, just that you're going to sit in an interview room, there's going to be cameras, there's going to be these things that uh, we just think are the norm. And I think you really um, uh, clarified uh, the fact mm-hmm. of this unknown world that you're stepping into, that you need some guidance and from law enforcement. it's not only unknown and unfamiliar. I mean, I, maybe that's not true in every case, but that's the first time I'd only been in a courtroom. There's that part of it. But the other part of it is your your mind is so cloudy at that point. You're like a zombie. I, I couldn't have told you my address at some points in this ordeal. So having somebody to lead you through it for that reason is also helpful. And then in some cases, not mine, fortunately, I think that the courtroom can be a dangerous place because the family and friends of the accused are not happy to have you there. And that's why in some cases now family members are allowed to be in a separate area. But that wasn't the case with me. It was just a congested, chaotic kind of courtroom and with extra security precautions and cameras. And it was, as I remember looking back, it was pretty chaotic. Well, and I can tell you that in in our courtrooms, the... You know, the victim's family is sitting on one side and you have the defendant's family sitting on the other. So there's really not that much separation. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking feet away uh, of uh, to the perpetrator, to the uh, defendant's family that obviously has their own opinion of things that happen. Let's take a moment and listen to Dr. Canty as she tells her story at the II. In 1985, there were 18,976 recorded murders in the United States. My husband was one of them. My life became suddenly chaotic and frightening. As you can imagine, it felt like the world was upside down, as if it was just shrieking at me. Immediately, I was given two new labels. One was widow, and the other a homicide survivor, a term I had never heard before. And then I learned I was far from alone because it's been shown that for every one homicide, there's a corresponding eight people that are deeply and immediately impacted by that death. This meant that I had been drafted into a largely unseen community of over 150,000 people in that year alone, approximately the size of Columbia, South Carolina. Perhaps you have referred to, have heard us referred to as collateral damage. We call it living the marathon. We are largely inconspicuous, yet we live down the block from some of you or work in the next building. I'm sure that you passed us in airports on the way to this conference, that you have stood beside us at sports events and in lines beside us at grocery stores. Our members are young and old, educated and illiterate, male and female, rich and poor, urban and rural. Perhaps you know somebody that has already joined us. As a freshly minted homicide survivor, I would not have then been able to relate to a quote I recently read by John Cochran, a British crime scene manager. He drew parallels between his work and music. What he said was, I'm the conductor of an orchestra. I don't need to know how to play the violin, but I need to know the sound that they make, and more importantly, when to bring them in. 
to recognize when I need a blood pattern expert, a forensic archaeologist, a pollen expert, someone to construct immersive 360-degree images of a scene. Anticipation kicks in as soon as I get in the call. As soon as I get the call, I get in my car, put on classical music, and start planning. But every crime scene is different, and it's nowhere near what you expect. Of course, we know that what he's saying is that your work is a coordinated effort. There are times you must function solo, at other times as a duet. But you almost must be in harmony and remain in your own section. And in the end, it has to come together to create its own rhythm. And you must be from the same sheet of music. On the best days, it sounds like an open road, maybe even a hum. Have you ever had a case like that? The sheer number of experts assembled here in Reno, in latent print, processing tape, FR systems, ballistics, and so on, speaks to the volume of talent brought together with one purpose, the advancement and application of forensic disciplines to assist in solving crime. But the hum, the music, no matter how perfectly performed, falls short if you never get a chance to meet your audience. The families that you've helped never had a chance to shake their hand, hear their stories, or have them hear yours, which is one of the reasons why I've come today. Another reason is to outline a few ways that our experiences with intentional death overlap. It has been 34 years since the murder of my spouse, Al. And in that time, I have never spoken about his demise in front of a group. I rarely speak about it at all in person. Briefly, what happened is that he was reported missing by me back in July of 1985. He'd been gone a week when an informant by the name of Frank McMaster walked into the Detroit Police Headquarters Homicide Division and turned himself in. He admitted that he was part of the cover-up, but denied he was involved with the murder itself. He told them that he could lead them to the body in exchange for immunity from prosecution. After some further deliberation, the DA agreed, and Frank McMaster led them up to Petoskey, Michigan. They searched for two to three hours in a boggy, murky expanse of land owned by the University of Michigan. It was called the Biologic Station. He was eventually found 18 inches below ground. His remains were packaged and sent back to the Detroit Wayne County Morgue. I don't know the names of the investigators who were involved that night. Um, behind the scenes, but if by chance you happen to be one of them, it would mean a great deal to me to meet you later and thank you personally for the work that you've done. As a curious twist, there was one Detroit police officer who remained in touch with me occasionally after Al's death. However, after his son, Drew, was killed in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub in 2016, we became closer friends. And as he put it, I'd always been on the inside of the yellow tape until now. In my unpublished memoir of my experience, which I wrote not only from a perspective of a homicide survivor, but as a psychologist too, I described my own kind of crime scene manager. This was Detective Marlis Landeros. I think of her that way because she also had to coordinate the work that you do with the needs of my family. And she did so professionally and seamlessly and also with compassion. And she was very um, timely in everything that she did. In my passage where I speak of our first meeting, I say this. I'd been summoned to the Detroit Police Headquarters by Inspector Gil Hill early Sunday. My parents and I arrived at 1300 Bobian and were met by Detective Landeros. We rode the jarring, dimly lit elevator in silence, as most strangers do. She knew the drill, the customs of the police department, the locations in this foreign landscape, the dark language of death. She understood the criminal justice system, the point people, and the way things were done. 
A week later, she asked me to accompany her to the morgue. This compassionate woman, this intelligent hinge between life and death, between normalcy and a world where evil has raised havoc. I slowly shook my head no and stayed rooted in my seat, trying to make her go away, make it go away. She patiently, knowingly opened the door to an unwanted future, a boundary I dare not cross, a world I knew nothing of and wished to run from. This was the prelude to my nightmares. So while you investigate murder, the families of the deceased try to survive it. And the first parallel in our experiences with intention death is that each of us is strong enough to stand alone, but wise enough to know when we should come together. Which brings me to the trial. Some of what you want heard at trial will not be allowed into evidence and vice versa. For example, you might find a valuable shoe, valuable shoe print accidentally stepped on by a first responder or evidence obtained in advance of a search warrant. A British forensic pathologist by the name of Richard Shepard described it this way in his book on natural causes. It's a battle for detachment, a strategy of repression, where you tightly screw yourself down. You live in a cocoon of interpersonal professional detachment, and that's not all. We, we do this incredible work in forensics, put reports together and stand up in court, and some barrister has a go at you after you've given your heart and soul to a case. It can be painful. You must convince yourself that, in the end, you are doing good, which is also why I've come to applaud the work that you do. Have you ever testified for the prosecution as an expert witness? If so, you know that defense attorneys are viewed with caution. They may try to discredit your testimony based upon short tenure, trying to give the impression that you are unskilled. They may amplify limitations of forensic science by pointing out loudly, for example, that touch DNA has a high fault positive track record, making it appear totally unscientific. They may even use a patronizing tone with you, asking, do you accept you could be mistaken, wedging you into a no-win question. For homicide survivors, the trial also has a learning curve, and it usually comes at a time when we have just started to heal from the death, reopening wounds in the process. Our own learning curve is comprised of learning gradually that this is a crime that's viewed as being against the state, not us, not even our loved one. And when we realize that, we feel as if something else has been forcibly taken from us, that we are now a subordinate clause, that perhaps we're even in the way. Also, our loved one is not referred to by name in court frequently, especially by defense counsel, but becomes the body or the deceased, which tends to depersonalize what happened. We may be treated with hostility by the family and friends of the accused. And sometimes the reputation of the deceased is put on trial by defense counsel with an undertone of, well, it was to be expected or they deserved it. They do this by pointing out differences between the deceased and the jury. For example, they may point to gang affiliation, bankruptcy, multiple marriages, infidelity, or psychiatric hospitalization. The Warren Court's decision for due process of defendant rights mandates that defense counsel zealously advocate for lighter sentences for their clients at time of sentencing by speaking to mitigating circumstances. But to us, and perhaps to you too, that merely sounds like excuses. The good news is that since the time I'm speaking about, 30,000 new laws have been passed in 32 states which now give homicide survivors rights in court that they never used to have. They now can speak to, at sentencing and parole hearings. They are given access to a victim advocate, written notice of appeals, and most states can be provided a secure waiting area during all court procedures, as well as other rights. 
And when we testify, we may also have evidence or statements that we would like to enter into the record, but which will never be asked and never allowed. For example, we might like to speak to how fearful it is to sleep in our own bed at night, how these experiences have caused us to lose faith in other people, and how it feels to be but 40 feet away from the accused, in my case, an admitted murderer. We frequently feel that the survivors feel that the criminal justice system in general and defense counsel in particular leave us marginalized and publicly re-victimized. I know I certainly felt that way. We're shocked to learn that most homicides don't even go to court at all but end in a plea bargain. But to be fair, there are some families that welcome this because it spares them from listening and sitting through uh, grisly testimony. It's more expedient, and it removes the possibility of a not guilty finding. But I wanted a trial. I wanted them to answer to a jury of their peers in open court. I wanted to look them in the eye and have them know that I existed. I wanted them to see their repercussions for what they had done. I did not want any backroom deals. Norman Mailer once said that you don't know a woman until you've met her in court, and I suspect that is probably true. But when there is a trial, of course, evidence must be put on, and it can sometimes be more than we bargained for. Just as one illustration, I want to read to you a small part of the ME's court testimony pertaining to her postmortem exam of my spouse. Dr. Fraser sedated... Initially, on external examination, there were two lacerations on the right side of the head in the region of the right temple. There were semicircular abrasions, and the deceased also had a bruise or contusion over the center of the forehead. There was extensive bony destruction beneath and abrasions over the bridge of the nose. The individual had bilateral preorbital contusions, more commonly called black eyes. Prosecutor Agasinski asked, could you determine if all these inquiries were inflicted while the body was still alive? Her answer, yes, they were. I was subpoenaed to testify, not to the crime itself, but to the identity of my spouse. And when I came to the courtroom, the defense counsel for John Fry tried to stipulate to my testimony, in effect, keep me out of the courtroom. It infuriated me. In my memoir, I recall this is how I felt upon entering the courtroom. Detective Landeros escorted me into the congested courtroom with a muted air of presumed victory. The defense table was to my left. This was the first time my eyes had set on the people I'd only seen in the news. I needed to take a stand and make a stand. I edged my way towards the bench in the crush of another media circus with my pulse beating in my temples. The aisle was narrow. In the process, I deliberately placed two fingers of my left hand on the defense table as I passed by, within inches of thing one and thing two, as if I needed to balance myself in the swarm. However, I was deliberately encroaching into their personal space, outing them, exposing my palpable rage, my lack of shock and awe. My eyes hastily glanced at John Fry's hands, knowing full well what they'd done. I'd seen his handiwork firsthand at the morgue. It was appalling, vicious, undoable. And as for Spence, she used them to accept cash and gifts, sneak away body parts and plunge syringes of street poison into her veins. But for now, she rested them in her lap, as if relaxing in a church pew. Dawn Spence Lairdon's face was puffy, ashen, and soulless. I felt entitled to my time on the witness stand. I'd earned it. My annoyance at defense counsel was barely restrained. After the swearing-in, a morbid hush fell over the voyeurs who'd assembled to eavesdrop on the story that was not theirs. Prosecutor Agasinski began, Dr. Canty, how long were you married? 
While responding, I forced myself to look at the defendants, to again intrude into their personal space. John was huge, like a crude Mr. Clean. He wore a wrinkled western shirt over his tough, upholstered arms. His younger accomplice appeared sunken, ill, oddly detached, perhaps even bored. Her skin was a sickly gray-green. Dark circles accentuated the same dull eyes that witnessed Al's convulsions during the ambush. The DA continued, Were you recently asked to come to the Wayne County morgue? I bristled at that question. Yes, I answered as I looked down. Were you asked to make an identification of a person there? Yes, I replied again, as flashes of the gore made by the man sitting only 40 feet away were awakened. I swallowed hard, my hands in my lap curled into tight, perspiring fists. Did you give anyone permission to bury the body or dismember the body in any way? No, I firmly answered, I did not. So the second shared lesson in our experiences with death is that we should not rely on court experience as a measure of our value because facts don't necessarily win cases, perceptions do. The third parallel in our experience pertains to perceptions, again, this time influenced by television and movies. They deprecate and fabricate our genuine experiences with intentional death. The CSI effect, something I think of as forensic science fiction, that gap between what is portrayed and what is real in shows like Law and Order, CSI, Cold Case, Cold Case, and movies like The Zodiac Killer and Boondock Saints, they gloss over the tedious aspects of your work the report writing, the waiting, the standing around and waiting for meetings, and instead present your work as the viewers want it to be, neat, fast, unambiguous, and glamorous. Here's a photograph of how they depict your lab. Does it look familiar? Investigators are depicted on these shows working 24 hours a day, one case at a time, wearing expensive clothes and driving expensive cars, such as in this photograph here. More importantly, these shows influence jurors and potential jurors to the point now where the voir dire process now quizzes them on their viewing habits. According to Pat Reavy, these are the top five TV crime show myths. Number one, evidence technicians have no specialty, carry a gun, investigate the crime, and interview suspects. Two, everyone is in the fingerprint database. Three, tire track analyses provide two results. Yes, he did it or no, he didn't. And they're usually this crisp. Four, when facial recognition matches are found, the crime lab computers flash big red letters proclaiming 98% match, accompanied by a driver's license photo for good measure. And last, investigators conduct testing while munching snacks, joking around, taking personal calls, and even flirting. <clears throat> this particular photograph was taken from the TV show Bones, loosely based on forensic anthropology. I want you to look at it again and imagine if it was seen by the family of a recently resolved cold case. What do you think would go through their mind as they looked at it? The good news is that research has shown that criminals who study these shows with the intent on improving their skills as a criminal are unable to do so because of all the errors. I've come up with my own top five myths depicting homicide survivors in these productions. Number one, the media will wait outside your home no matter how long it takes until you come out. Two, trials always disclose and expose shameful family secrets. Three, two detectives personally come to give you the death notification and split up once inside your residence, where one will look around and, and they split up, and then one will look around and steal a photo or two. It seems like the families are always home when this occurs. The detectives never seem to have to come back. And in reality, only one out of three families are ever notified in person of the death. The fourth myth, homicide survivors must be talked down from becoming vigilantes. 
And last, in the cemetery at the burial ceremony, there's a mysterious looking person off in the bushes, which relates to number two, shameful family secrets. So the third lesson in our shared experience is that death, especially violent death, becomes theater, and it reinforces stereotypes of all of us here today. The old adage, if it bleeds, it leads, is just as true in the age of Twitter as it was in the heyday of radio. And since we cannot change what is portrayed about us, all we can do is change the eyes which see us, perhaps through face-to-face encounters such as these. Fourth, a fourth parallel. We all have intimate knowledge of intentional death, and it confronts our sensibilities. In our experience, there are things we cannot unhear and unsee. After two to three decades, it after two to three decades, this stress accumulates. And clearly, your job is not for the faint of heart. We've all learned firsthand that humans are the greatest predators on the face of the earth today. Do you feel that your successes are largely hidden while failures are very public? Your work takes a toll. How could it be otherwise? And it is compounded by the fact that we live in a suck-it-up culture and both work in a suck-it-up profession where we are to always appear confident and unfazed by what we hear and what we see. John Burkett, a forensic lab specialist from England, explains it this way. To some extent, you have to detach yourself from the fact that this is a piece of a human body. You've always got that in mind and the sensitivities behind it. But if you really started thinking about it, after 30 odd years on the job, you realized you've looked at a lot of pieces and there's a lot of nightmare potential. The stress your job takes sometimes means that the helpers need help especially when other pressures are added to your shoulders, such as issues with your health, an impending divorce, geographic move, co-worker friction, problems with your teenage children. You fill in the blanks. The list is endless. It's no surprise, then, that research finds there's a crescendo of substance abuse, anxiety, depression, and sadly, even suicide in first responders of all stripes compared with the general population. And as for homicide survivors, it's no different, especially for those in one of these 11 situations. One, those who witnessed the murder. Two, those who must sleep under the same roof where it occurred. Three, loved ones who identified the mutilated corpse. Four, people injured or raped in the same attack. Five, comorbid or pre-existing conditions such as those with a prior assault or chronic pain. Six, the very young. Seven, someone who lost their partner of decades or a small child. Eight, those without resources. Nine, Cases where multiple family members were killed. Ten, when both perpetrator and victim were from the same family. And eleven, people unable to return to work. As you probably know, the trauma response includes repetitive nightmares, insomnia, irritability. It's as if the inner scaffolding that held you up collapses and your battery will no longer take a charge. Then there's these things called triggers, which are like visceral internal responses to something that forcibly reminds you of the original trauma. In my case, it was baseball. As a child, I loved baseball. I played as part of a league. We had uniforms and trophies and banquets and Saturday practice, and I took it very seriously. My father would take me to Twinite Doubleheaders at Detroit uh, Baseball uh, downtown to the stadium. Uh, for my birthday. And it was something I look forward to every year, partly because it was time alone with my dad. But when Fry used a baseball bat to club my husband to death, it changed my view of it forever. And I have not been to a baseball game since. In fact, I don't even like to see one in a store or on a movie screen or in a television production. The corrosive drip, drip, drip effect of disaster can reverberate indefinitely, 
our resilience is tested. Do we succumb or overcome? What can we learn from research? Well, it demonstrates that the single best predictor of doing well after a distressing event or years of buildup, as in your work, is interconnectedness, that social fabric that brings us together. And this is vividly supported by emerging research in biology, sociology, neurology, and psychology. As an example, the 2018 Shamshaw Report concluded, organizational support approachable leaders, camaraderie among first responders is the protective factor that against burnout and maladaptive coping. This also shows why organizations such as the one you're attending is vital to you. It may also explain why interconnectedness of a shared trauma such as a flood will help people fare better than those in an isolated event, such as a carjacking or a rape. And it is definitely what I observed when I volunteered through the Red Cross to go to Hurricane Katrina. And this interconnectedness also explains why anger and social withdrawal are so important to address because they interfere with interconnectedness and its its taming effects on trauma. So the emotional strain, no matter how ugly and prolonged, does not have to define us. Personal growth has been observed throughout history in every country following exposure to ordeals. Perhaps someone you know comes to mind. This individual, I think, typifies this. This is Spencer West from Wyoming. He was born with sacral agenesis, a rare genetic disease, which causes leg muscles to wither. And they usually have to be amputated. In his case, they were above the knee at age five, but it was not enough. They later amputated his legs above his pelvis. His parents were told he would never sit up and probably never be contribute uh, to society. Well, he graduated college. He moved to Toronto. He wrote a book called Standing Tall. In 2012, he climbed Count Millen. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro along with his closest friends. There's that interconnectedness, using just his hands and a wheelchair. In 2013, he completed an epic 187-mile trek between Edmonton to Calgary, Canada. Isn't his resilience amazing? If we think of resilience as a muscle, it can be strengthened through interconnectedness. Not everybody's going to want to talk, of course, and there's a time and a place for it. But opening the door by saying to your colleague, I know you're struggling and I'm here, can dramatically help set the stage to build resistance through camaraderie. And colleagues are much more likely to help one another than they are to come to a psychologist uh, for help. I'm like the third or fourth resort. It's, It's much more likely that they'll seek out a coworker. So the fourth connection that we share is that circumstances faced today do not determine our tomorrow. They merely mark the starting line, and when it is shared, it is doable. Our last parallel pertains to journalism, and I use that term loosely. They are our ally and our nemesis. It is true that they can facilitate real-time communication between officials at the crime scene, and they've helped resolve crimes through things like amber alerts and news helicopters following police pursuits on the ground. But they sometimes arrive ahead of you through the use of police scanners, which could potentially contaminate the crime scene. They have used distracting drones above your head. And should discord break out between officials at the scene, it can be tweeted and retweeted and later become fodder for the defense. Because the media functions without a mandate for the repercussions of what they do. In their ever-present rush to meet deadlines and grab headlines, they complicate your work and the work of homicide, the grief work of homicide survivors. They have errors in their story, such as the time the news had a, a few minutes in the portrayed on the TV in which they interviewed a supposed close family of the friend about her views of why my husband was missing, and I had never met her before. She was described as a close friend of the family. And when they shove a microphone and a camera in your face when you are in shock, 
from just learning of the death or of a major update in the case. They're causing a shock to occur. And when that happens, the blood flow from your brain to the speech centers of your brain slows down. That blood flow slows down, causing you to become inarticulate and forever remembered that way. Survivors may even learn about the loss through social media. There was an occasion when I was driving on westbound I-94 in rush hour traffic shortly after I'd been to the morgue. And I was listening to WJZZ, a music station. The regular broadcast was interrupted with a news bulletin in which the police indicated that my husband's leg had just been found on northbound I-75 in Joslin. I nearly got in an accident. It took all the strength and concentration I had to pull off to the side of the road safely. And as sure as I am standing here today, I know that nobody in the decision process to put that on the air gave any thought to the repercussions of what they did. Two more examples before I close involving journalists. The first pertains to the morgue. After I had identified my spouse and at a time when I was barely sleeping and eating, I was exiting the building with Detective Landeros. And in my exhaustion and my stress, when I looked out the door, I saw a collection of people and what I, despite the fact that it was early on a Sunday morning, and what I thought I saw was a machine gun on a turret pointed directly at me. I froze. She spun me around and we ended up going out a rear exit. Of course, what I saw later, uh, realized later, was that I had just seen a camera on a tripod. But it's an indicative of the state of mind I was in, as well as the degree of what journalists will go to to get a news bite. The second example pertains to Verheiden Funeral Home, which occurred a week later. I deliberately went two hours ahead of time. I wanted to be by myself in the sanctuary, and I did have an opportunity to speak one-on-one with the undertaker. I made it very clear that I wanted no reporters on the premises, inside or out. I received no assurances that they would be barred. He said things like, well, I can't keep them off a public street. And I said, no, but you can keep them out of the building. If it, I'd had it my way, I would have had family only, a very small, serious um, eulogy and over and done with quickly. But two hours later and 300 guests later, as I stood to leave after the eulogy was finished, some reporter shoved a microphone and a camera in my face. Fortunately, my friend was husband was standing there and put his camera over the lens of the reporter's equipment and barred him from photographing me. I fell into my friend's lap with my hands over my head and repeatedly said, is nothing off limits? Is nothing off limits? So the public's right to know versus the harm done to investigators and survivors from overzealous, impatient, and inaccurate journalists is impossible to measure. But we do know that the news devotes half of its time to violent crime, despite the fact that it's a relatively rare occurrence. But if we don't tell our story, someone else will, which is one of the major reasons I wrote the memoir. So the last shared lesson is that those of us in the news, those that make the news, and consumers of the news do not see it the same. They never will. So looking ahead, how many homicides around the globe do you think will be tallied in three years? 200,000? 400,000? Well, using an average of various scenarios, it is estimated that it will become 600,000 people. If that's true, that means in three years there will be 4,800,000 new homicide survivors around the globe that will be drafted into this nearly invisible caravan that preceded them, roughly the population of Rome, Italy. Will they be seen as collateral damage? They will begin to live the marathon. They will be young and old, educated and illiterate, male and female, rich and poor, urban and rural, 
You may know one of them. They could be your neighbor, mechanic, little league coach, waitress, or co-worker, even someone in this room. The recent horrifying numbers of 22 dead in El Paso, 10 in Dayton, 12 in Virginia Beach, 6 in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, illustrates just how fragile life is. The devastation of a few minutes leaves an indelible memory for decades, not just for us homicide survivors, but for all first responders tasked with repairing the unrepairable. So, we're not so different, you and me. The yellow tape is where we meet. And the lessons we share are that statistics cannot capture this. Trials cannot reverse this. Hollywood cannot mimic this. Trauma cannot forget this. But together we can rectify this. The music you generate is complex and invaluable. You may not be able to touch it, but it touches others. I want to thank you for your determination, your innovation, and your professionalism, as well as for having me come to speak. Thank you. But I appreciate you sharing that, and it was uh, very impactful. I think that it's something that should be shared uh, with CSIs and investigators. I think it's helpful to them, and I appreciate you allowing us to share it. And and wrapping up as far as this, uh, you are starting a podcast uh, to uh, basically share uh, with other uh, families and the impact that homicide had to generations and things. If you could uh, tell right. us a little it's bit about that. It's in the development stage. Uh, it's going to be called The Domino Effect of Murder. And what I intend to do is to not focus on the perpetrator, nor the crime, and nor the victim, which is where 99% of our attention seems to be drawn. But instead, I want to talk to the long-range impact, about the long-range impact of what homicide does to families or first responders or witnesses. Not in the short term because they're too raw to even articulate it, but I'm talking like sometimes even two to three generations later, what the impact, the fallout can be from these awful crimes, whether that's economics, emotional, legally, socially, spiritually, uh, Cognitively, There's just so many ways that it can impact a family. And I'm hoping to give a voice to that because there's really not much focus on homicide survivors. They don't tend to come up and speak for themselves. As you indicated, it took me 30 years to do so. This was the first time I'd ever spoken to a group when I came to IAI. And it was a big one. (laughs) Uh, It takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it is a big conference. So I want to give a voice to people to have a way to talk about what is the fallout from these homicides on the relatives and the first responders and witnesses to these crimes. So a majority of our listeners are investigators, are uh, crime scene, at least involved in law enforcement in some aspect or otherwise. So if, uh, and some of those are people that uh, obviously are involved, victims of crimes, things that are just following different crime scene shows. So if someone is out there that would like to talk with you about uh, your podcast, possibly uh, get a, a person that wants to tell their story, Probably how the would they uh, get in touch with you? the simplest way is to go to my website, which is www dot Jan Canty, C-A-N-T-Y, Ph-D dot com. And uh, there's a place in there to communicate and I can get back with them. Okay. Well, that would be great. And uh, Jan, I appreciate you joining us and, and sharing your story. And uh, again, joining us at the IAI and, and sharing your experience there that uh, was very impactful to all of us. Thank you for having me. And I, I really enjoyed my time at IAI. As it turns out, my my worries were for nothing. <laughs> All right, well. Th-